sometimes when people talk about their goal as being organizing the working class, that's actually not what they're doing. Because if it were really their goal, then they would, of course, want to speak in the most inclusive ways possible and address the fact that the women are in the working class and the working class in the United States has a large percentage of people of color. This program is made possible by members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, find us on Patreon or visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Democracy Now!, Jacobin Radio, Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, Politically Reactive, and The Zero Hour. We turn now to the future of the Democratic Party. Last week in Virginia, party leaders unveiled their new slogan, A Better Deal, and rolled out an agenda to win back the working class voters they lost to President Donald Trump in November. This is Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. When you lose elections, as we did in 2014 and 2016, you don't flinch. You don't blink. You look in the mirror and ask, what did we do wrong? The number one thing we did wrong is not present a strong, bold economic agenda to working Americans so that their hope for the future might return again. Democrats have too often hesitated from directly and unflinchingly taking on the misguided policies that got us here. So much so that too many Americans don't know what we stand for. Not after today. President Trump campaigned on a populist platform, talking to working people. That's why he won. But as soon as he got into office, he abandoned them, making alliance with the powerful, special interest, Koch brother-dominated, hard right wing of the Republican Party, which appeals to the very wealthy, not the working people, leaving a vacuum on economic issues. We Democrats are going to fill that vacuum. Democrats will show the country we are the party on the side of working people. American families deserve a better deal. So this country works for everyone again, not just the elites, not just the special interests. Today, Democrats start presenting that better deal to the American people. The Democratic Party's rebranding effort comes as the party has lost all four special congressional elections this year to Republicans, including most recently in South Carolina and Georgia. These defeats come despite President Trump's approval rating dipping to 36 percent as he passed the six-month mark of his presidency. That's the lowest six-month approval rating of a U.S. president in 70 years. Well, our next guest says the Democratic Party committee and its allies are likely to spend more than $750 million on the 2018 midterms without addressing the party's core problems connecting with disillusioned voters. For more, we go to San Francisco, California, where we're joined by Steve Phillips, founder of Democracy in Color, also author of the New York Times bestselling book, Brown is the New White, How the Demographic Revolution Has Created a New American Majority. Phillips is a senior fellow at Center for American Progress 
Press, a columnist with The Nation and regular opinion contributor to The New York Times. Steve Phillips, welcome to Democracy Now! So much has been made of what has happened just in the last week with the Republican Party. I mean, the failure of their health care bill to move forward, uh, Donald Trump being criticized by the chief of the Boy Scouts for the, the Boy Scouts for the speech that he gave. Um, of course, everything that's happened in the White House, the expletive-laden um, rant of his new communications director, Anthony Scaramucci, and, and other issues just in the last week. Um, and you're saying, forget all this for a moment. Let's look at the state of the Democratic Party. They just have not been in focus. Um, talk about what you think is this billion-dollar blunder. Yeah. So the, the, the challenge the Democrats face is to focus on the math and not on the myth of what happened in 2016. And so the myth is that all of these Democratic voters, all of these working class uh, white voters who had supported Obama, defected from the Democrats and then flocked to Donald Trump's campaign and backed him. And that's what the, that's why the Democrats lost. And that's why they have to uh, pursue them to be able to actually try to reassemble their uh, power and get back into positions. But that's not actually what happened, and certainly not why they lost the, the election. We had unprecedented or unprecedented in 20 years black voter turnout drop off. More than a million fewer black voters came out. And you had a splintering of the progressive white vote. And you had a larger increase of voters for Johnson and Stein, I sometimes call the John the, the John Stein voters, than you did for for Trump. And if you look in a place Wisconsin, that's where it's clearest. Trump got fewer voters in Wisconsin than Romney did. So it wasn't like everybody flocked to him. It's that the progressive vote splintered and was depressed. And that's the challenge that the Democrats have face is how to re-inspire, bring back out African American voters, bring up Latino vote, and bring back the whites who defected to third and fourth party. That's the way to put back the uh, Obama coalition. That's the way to get back into power. But all this attempt to try to figure out how to woo voters who were uh, drawn to one of the most uh, racist, misogynistic, xenophobic campaigns in history is a fool's errand. Well, the, uh, this whole question of the Democratic Party's relationship to, uh, especially to xenophobic voters has not, it's not the first time the party has grappled with it. I mean, if you go back to the 50s and the 60s, the Dixiecrats were a staple or a part of, a part of the Democratic Party. Then when, when, uh, the Clinton era developed, there was the whole emphasis of the new Democrats to try to get conservative, uh, white voters, uh, even as the nation Keeps shifting, as you mentioned in your book, de demographically in a, and the Democratic Party itself. Uh, so how do you get these uh, leaders to understand, to look at the future of America and not at the past? Well, writing a book is not enough, as I have found out. And so it's—there's such a powerful uh, incentive and default position that the thing to do is to go chase that shrinking sector of the— a population. And I want to be clear. I'm not saying don't pay attention to white people. I'm saying it's the conservative white voter. You're going out, Democrats are going after the wrong white voters. There are progressive white voters. There are progressive working class white voters who need to be inspired and who need to be attracted and brought back. But the percentage of the population that the white working class uh, comprises has shrunk dramatically. In the mid 1970s, the white working class was 74 percent of the electorate. In this last election, they were 43 percent of the electorate. 
And so to continue to chase a shrinking sector at a time when the voters of color are expanding literally by the hour, every day, 7,000 new people of color added to the population versus 1,000 whites, is really, frankly, fairly incomprehensible, but it's so embedded in the DNA that the most important voters are those white working class voters. And the problem and the challenge is that all this money is going to be spent, tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars we spent on television ads mainly, trying to pursue this sector of the population, which is not receptive, and more importantly, it's not necessary to win at the same time as we have a majority population waiting to be spoken to, engaged, organized, and mobilized. So, just quoting from your New York Times op-ed piece, um, Steve Phillips, you write, The country's under conservative assault because Democrats mistakenly sought support from conservative white working-class voters susceptible to racially charged appeals. Replicating that strategy would be another catastrophic blunder. Um, however, Bernie had an um, enormous appeal um, during the last campaign. Can you talk about who are the people that you think should be appealed to um, across the board and take it right to Occupy Wall Street and the philosophy there? Yeah, that, and that, that's a good point as well. And so the coalition that elected and you know, more importantly re-elected Obama, because Obama got five million fewer white votes in 2012, consists of overwhelming numbers of people of color, uh, close to 80 uh, percent of the voters of color. And then a meaningful minority of whites. Obama got 39 percent. Clinton got 37 percent. And so in a lot of ways, Bernie did show how to appeal particularly to the progressive white sector, an unapologetic campaign speaking to issues of economic inequality in this country, things like, you know, $15 minimum wage, uh, free, uh, free access to higher education. Those issues resonated with people. And it does tie back to the Occupy Wall Street piece. I mean, I talk in my book about doing a wealth tax on the top 1% in the country, that the top 1%, people who have $13 million a year, who have $13 million in assets, collectively have $25 trillion. And so if we did a 2% wealth tax, that would generate enough money to end poverty within this, within this country. And so you know, if you, as a political matter, if you're trying to get to 50% plus one of the votes, saying you're with the 99% is actually not a bad uh, place to start. So I do think there's a reluctance in the Democratic Party to actually go after Wall Street and go after the 1%, to have them pay a fair share of taxes to be able to make the country better and to lift all of the boats. Lately, I've been distressed by an increase in intra-left tensions, at least as visible on social media. While I'd initially hoped that Trump's election would provoke a unity among progressive forces, the opposite looks to be the case, as old battles of class versus identity get rejoined. 
Mainstream Dems cynically used identity claims as a way of undermining the Sanders campaign. Economic issues, we were told, had nothing to do with undoing racism and sexism, as if racism and sexism had nothing to do with material economic relations like the job market or property ownership. With the failure of such appeals to win the election for Hillary, I'd hoped we could get beyond those unproductive exchanges, which have more the quality of taunts than debates. But I was wrong, at least by the evidence of battles on Twitter, a medium that has its charms, but which easily devolves into a toxic dump, and Facebook, or at least the branch of it known as Leftbook. It was all reminiscent to me of similar battles in the 90s. Then it was, at least among a certain set, Marxism versus postmodernism, a largely unproductive screaming match, although there were plenty of class versus identity subthemes to it as well. That all receded as the millennium turned, but now it's looking at the forces of eternal recurrence are toying with us again. For help, I turn to Jody Dean. Not only does she manage to take race and gender as seriously as class, but she also has a temperament that can help us get beyond the morbid bickering. Jody is a professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith's Colleges in upstate New York, and author most recently of Crowds and Party from Verso. Jody Dean. I feel like almost we're back in the 1990s again, the late 90s. We're back in this class versus identity fight, uh, at least online. I don't know about the real world. Are you seeing the same thing? What do you think of it? Well, on social media, we all see this, right? Um, but I think we need to make sure that we analyze why we see it on social media. Um, as I like to talk about in my academic writing, our system can be understood in terms of communicative capitalism. And communicative capitalism values the fast circulation of everything. So on social media, this makes people write in ways that are going to get hits, shares, likes, forwards, you know, little hearts, little thumbs up. And then this leads people to do things like speak in the most outrageous terms possible, to speak in ways that might have more profanity than usual, um, that might be much more dismissive because people think it's wittier. And so the dynamics of social media really privilege the most extreme kinds of speech. And in some ways, I mean, it's like it's almost like we can't help it, right? It's much harder to be polite um, and circumspect in 140 characters or less or when you've got a massive amount of material going through your Facebook feed. So I think on the very first pass for thinking about the extreme manifestations of discussions of politics on you know, on left book or in the broad left um, on social media is that social media is going to end up distorting how we talk about things. It's funny, actually, I remember a lot of the, uh, that, the, the struggles of the late 90s I was just describing um, as occurring on listservs. So they, they were sort of the antecedent or the ancestor of social media. Yeah, that's, um, that makes me think of someone actually who's um, something someone said recently on my Facebook feed where they talked about cheap empowerment, right? So that um, in these kinds of online discussions, whether or not it's the listservs or contemporary social media, that people go for the little cheap, quick thrill of, oh, I'm so powerful. You know, I've been able to take this person down or establish my own credentials, my own virtue. And it's really hard to give that up, particularly when people feel disempowered, right? Everybody wants some kind of feeling like, oh, I've contributed to the struggle, or I'm really in it, and I want everyone to know. And the little cheap thrill of registering one's own righteousness is hard to give up. 
I think I might have mentioned this the first time we uh, talked on the radio, but uh, Bourdieu has this little book on television in which he said that the medium, by its very nature, rewards fast thinkers, uh, and that you can't do anything that questions uh, existing assumptions uh, that goes against the conventional wisdom, because that would interrupt the flow of TV. I'm gathering you think that uh, social media has really accelerated that process from the TV pace? Yeah, I think so. It's a lot harder to get people to respond to something that goes against their grain, that um, is surprising to them, that's troubling to them. So conformity, even if it's conformity within um, a particular milieu, is going to be rewarded, right? That's the little thrill when people are like, aha, that person has better said what I already think. And it's going to be a lot more fluid than something like, aha, that person has said something that deeply troubles my um, firmest convictions. And then it will always be, oh, but of course it's more complicated, right? The, the classic social media retort is, isn't that too simple or isn't it more complicated or aren't you leaving out X? As someone, again, tries to push back against what actually might be troubling. In theory, social media should be able to give us access to larger worlds than the ones we normally inhabit, but um, it also seems to encourage people to create little subcultures with and, and erect walls to keep out the uh, uh, the intruders. I mean, what about that? Is it isolating? Is it expansive? Is it both? I think it's both. One of the positive parts, I think, is letting a group or milieu or tendency start to become more present to itself, right? So like building a sense of, um, let's just say on the left, building a sense of the left is, oh, there are certain things that um, that we actually all stand for, that we all actually agree with. And that to call that a bubble, I think it would be really dismissive. No, it's um, a collective tendency becoming present to itself. So on the one hand, that's good. And then we can sometimes see a lot of the fiercest fights around the boundary maintenance. Like, what is it that we, like, that we on the left think? What is it that is going to mark um, an inside or outside view? So, of course, on the left, everyone's going to be against the KKK and against white supremacy. But then as start things start to become, I don't know, more nuanced, like, what exactly does it mean to confront white supremacy? Um, how do we do that? Then it's going to become tenser. So I think we should be... Um, appreciative of the way that social media gives us an opportunity to become clearer to ourselves about what we think, even as we recognize the worst kinds of speech practices that the media rewards. I mean, and sometimes, you know, sometimes there are good conversations. Um, They're just really, really hard to, um, really, really hard to manage. (laughs) They sometimes need a brutal moderator to direct things in the correct direction. Which, which is the beauty of the unfriend and delete function. <laughs> yes, yes. If, if only real life had a block function. <laughs> but to take this back to where we started, uh, you know, last year's presidential campaign, uh, the Hillary people were very cynical in their use of tropes of identity politics in order to marginalize uh, the Sanders challenge. So anything that talked about universal social democratic programs of the sort that mobilized a very large number of people, they would counter with, yes, but that doesn't do anything about racism. Um, or, you know, that uh, these Bernie bros, they don't really care about issues of gender. At the time, it seemed like a very cynical deployment of some tropes that originally developed on the left uh, against the left. Uh, but now... A year later, uh, it seems that, um, I don't know, it seems to me that some people who were very strong Sanders supporters are now nonetheless 
rejecting any kinds of identity claims, uh, any interest in race or gender or sexuality as distractions from the real business of politics, which is organizing the working class. How do, how do you see this development, uh, the terrain? <sighs> so uh, that's a hard one. So the first thing is sometimes when people talk about their goal as being organizing the working class, that's actually not what they're doing. Because if it were really their goal, <laughs> then they would, of course, want to speak in the most inclusive ways possible and address the fact that the women are in the working class and the working class in the United States has a large percentage of people of color. So I think that in part, it's really crucial to say like, hey, wait a minute, you want to organize the working class? Well, I mean, let's look at the working class, right? This is, you know, don't give into the kind of weird fantasy that's always been wrong, that the working class um, is just white men. That's just never, ever been the case. And the, the fantasy that that is the case is one of the things that always hurts um, organizing. So I think that would be my, my first pass is, is to wonder um, why that attachment, right? And what do they think they're holding on to when they do that? Because it's got to be a fantasy that's not useful for anybody. And it's also unfair to the history of the socialist left. I mean, the socialist left has long shown interest in, in matters of, at least portions of it, have long shown interest in, in these issues of race and gender and sexuality. Oh, for crying out loud, you're totally right. I mean, even if you just go to Lenin, right? Lenin um, affirmed the importance of national self-determination, right? He was emphasizing the fact that there were multiple ethnic, cultural um, groups in Russia at the time, and that it should not be the case that one group determines everything that happens to them. So already with Lenin. And then in the United States, um, for all its problems, uh, the Communist Party was at the forefront of uh, the struggle against um, white supremacy, the struggle um, on behalf of the rights of sharecroppers, the struggles against Jim Crow. I mean, the whole Scottsboro Boys case was led by um, the CP. So I think that there's something really false um, when contemporary leftists essentially adopt the liberal stereotype of socialist as not being concerned with race and class. I mean, they do an injustice to socialist and communist history. Well, it's, it's kind of strange to see these as somehow not material relations. I mean, <laughs> sex and gender have been very crucial to the division of power and property and labor throughout history. And obviously, race has been very important in, in uh, organizing the American labor market, you know, and elsewhere around the world. I mean, it's just the idea that somehow this is a distraction from the material mystifies me. Oh, one of the things that I find most exciting when I go back and read the old Bolsheviks is the work of Alexandra Kollontai, because she talks all the time about the changing uh, changing gender roles in the family, being against um, patriarchy, needing to have equality within the family. She has tons of writing about um, prostitution and and how prostitution is not a moral issue at all, but a class issue, um, a way that some women are having under capitalism have to um, find ways of earning wages. And so the thing is, is that the entire history um, is one of a kind of vibrant appreciation for the richness and diversity of working class life and the fact and the, and the creation of an alternative milieu that expresses this diversity and that uses the strength of this diversity to attack capitalism.
Yes, and also uh, a lot of people on the Marxist left have been uh, very um, productive in developing an analysis of the role of unpaid labor of women, domestic labor, in uh, maintaining the system. So it's it's really something that we're pretty used to, and it's kind of funny that it's being forgotten both by uh, our enemies and some of our friends. Yeah, I think some of the um, coming out of a, from academia, some of the most exciting work that I found recently is under um, the idea of social reproduction and looking at the way that capitalism reproduces itself through the production of uh, gendered, sexed, raced relations. And these this reproduction of capitalism um, happens via the family. And of course, as we know from Althusser, via the school, but that we don't understand capitalism at all if we don't see how it uses um, sex, race, um, gender to become the system and, and, and maintain itself as a system it is. Today's episode is sponsored by Casper. They're a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience, one night at a time. At Casper, mattresses are perfectly designed for humans by humans, engineered to soothe and cradle your natural geometry by combining multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep surface with the right amounts of both sink and bounce. And with over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars across Casper, Amazon, and Google, Casper is becoming the internet's favorite mattress. You can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. Your Casper will be delivered to your door for free within the U.S. and Canada, and if within 100 days you're not satisfied, the return shipping is free as well. But based on my experience on a Casper, I truly doubt that you're going to need to think about returning yours. When I made the switch, I already had a memory foam mattress and thought it wouldn't be too different, but I was wrong, and the Casper really is the best bed I've slept on. And of course, Casper mattresses are already affordable thanks to cutting out showrooms and middlemen, but you can get an additional $50 off toward a mattress purchase by visiting casper.com best and using the code best at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's casper.com best and use the promo code best at checkout. What do you do then when you're talking to someone and they, their economic message is there? Like, I don't have a job. My family doesn't have a job. Our, our town and our economy is completely depressed. Nothing's happening. And it's because of those immigrants or it's because of those Mexicans or it's because of those fill-in-the-blank person, usually black or brown, who's taking something away from them. How then do you have the economic discussion when – you need to have both the economic discussion and the, you know, it's not them. Like, how do you disabuse them of the, the, the racism that is grounding what they're talking about? I mean, I think you have the economic discussion and say, you know, what we need now is two-thirds of Americans do not have college degrees. They feel forgotten. They feel forgotten because we forgot them. We're going to stop forgetting them. We're going to uh, get community colleges together with employers to develop not some fancy four-year degree, but a certificate program that will give you the skills you need for a local job in your area. Is that of interest to you? Right now, the only discussion about jobs is 
anti-trade treaties and anti-immigrants. We need a real discussion about jobs. That Now the discussion about jobs is tax cuts. And I can't fathom why Democrats aren't saying, you know, that's not a jobs program. That's a hope. That's a hope that if you give really rich people lots more money, they won't just pass it on to their kids, which is what parents typically do, mm-hmm. and that they'll create jobs for you, and they'll create jobs that are not the kind of dead-end muck jobs that have brought us to this past. We have a real jobs program, and this is what it is. So I also think, you know, if when you have stuff like Charlottesville, I mean, we're going to be talking about racism, right? I mean, we're talking about racism. We're talking about right white supremacy and and anti. I mean, I'm Jewish, so like that's no fun. And 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 this is, but this is all in the swirl. I mean, the thing about then candidate Donald Trump's campaign and now his presidency is that he's uncorked the bottle, and the genie's out, the poison's out, the toothpaste's out of the tube, whatever metaphor analogy you want to use. And one, it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, to put that back in, put that back in the bottle, but. At the same time that we have to address the issues of concern to the forgotten, we have to also address the racism and xenophobia and misogyny that is all tied up in this. And and I'm going to ask you the question that I asked Justin Guest when we were talking about this, um, because in reading his book, the question came up, and in reading your book, it comes up, and that is, what responsibility does the white, do you think, the white working class has in adapting to the already changing country? To my mind, it seems like everything, everything that I've read, not just, not just your book, but it's a lot of understand the working class. We have to understand them. But no one, I haven't seen anyone talk about their responsibility, once we've understood and we're all on the same page, their responsibility in looking at um, people who are different from them with the dignity and respect that, they're de- that they are demanding. Um, I think the best, I think we definitely need to insist that everybody treat everybody with dignity and respect, and certainly not because they're um, n- not lack of dignity because of race. I totally, totally get you there. But I think one of the things that is important to understand is that there is a really poisonous dynamic in this country between white people and that white people who are not privileged feel belittled, they feel stereotyped, they feel openly ridiculed, and they are really, really angry because of what elite white people are doing to them. Now, because of this poisonous dynamic among white people, guess who's paying the price? You got to fix the dynamic among white people. And the way to fix the dynamic of white, uh, among white people is to stop the indignity, which is not going to be easy. But just saying, you guys are all racist, classist, misogynist, and, te- and stupid, by the way, that's actually not helping people of color. That's hurting people of color because that is feeding this poisonous dynamic among white people. Now, if you say to these white folks who are directing their anger at, I mean, it ain't my problem. It ain't your problem. And we are getting blamed. Totally get that. My interest, though, is in not in figuring out who to blame more effectively, but in turning around the dynamic. If you want to turn that around that dynamic, you need to address people's dignity issues, and you need to address their economic issues at the same time 
as you say, you know, racism is just not someplace we as Americans go. There's one other thought about immigration I wanted to share, and I've been thinking a lot about this since I wrote the book. If you think about um, among, again, my crowd, um, there's this outpouring of empathy towards immigrants. And we basically have immigrants in sort of a very empathetic human rights frame. At the same time as among working class whites, they're racist, stupid, sexist, misogynistic, and did, did I mention stupid? So you have those stereotypes and you have them in kind of a neoliberal the race is to the swift, and I guess you're not it since you n never graduated. And it's this divergence of frames that is creating resentment by these working-class whites of immigrants. And, you know, the idea of the way to control working-class whites um, is to deflect their anger onto immigrants or onto blacks or other people of color. This has been going on. This is a this is a glorious American tradition. I was going to say it's an American. It's yes, been going on like an wow. American yeah, we, we've been going. This has been happening since the 17th century. But I mean, the epigram to my to my book is from Martin Luther King, who well understood this and said, you know, equality means dignity, and dignity means a paycheck that lasts through the week. He was trying to very self-consciously and in a sophisticated way avoid pitting working-class blacks and working-class whites. Why aren't we smart enough to do that? Because that's that, the challenge. And that, and that union was there early, early on, and um, political forces understood. That's when he got murdered. Uh, well, I'm going way, way back because yeah. um, as you, you write in your book, I, I, I didn't – of all the things I wrote down and, and starred, I don't, I don't have it pulled out. But you have mm -hmm. the thing in here about how in post-slavery time yeah. you had yeah. freed blacks and poor – White trash, and quote. poor agrarian and <laughs> Are these people being together. insulted? <laughs> Gee, they're being called trash. Guess they're being insulted. But you're right. And there was a very self-conscious strategy on the part of planters after the Civil War to drive a wedge between poor whites and poor blacks. And it's called the wages of whiteness of like, well, you may be white trash and, and, and dirt poor, you know, just those insults, um, but at least you're not black. And, and I don't think that that was the word that was used I just, don't to make, that, just to make yeah. the distinction very clear. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's interesting that I won't use that word insulting word right. for blacks, and I do use white trash, and people use it all the time, um, you know, I, I think the solution is to, is to round up rather than round down. I was just talking to a friend of mine last night. She's here from the UK, and she's part of the BLM crew there. And we were having this conversation about political blackness, which apparently is a, a thing in the UK, uh, particularly among South Asians, right? And folks are saying that politically, their social position puts them closer to black people um, than it does anybody else. And we were pulling that apart last night and saying, well, 
yeah, only when it's safe. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I was mm. explaining to her, you know, I asked her, I said, do you know who Paul Mooney is? You know what I mean? Oh, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> that's, <laughs> right? Oh, that's a great – if no, we're going to have fun the next couple hours exactly. as, I, as I pull up all the relevant exactly. materials. The black man in America is the most copied man on this planet, bar none. Everybody want to be a nigga, but nobody want to be a nigga. How about that question? But basically what he's saying is everybody wants to be black, but nobody really wants to be black. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's the kind of thing that I feel like we really need to coalesce around because, uh, you know, Kamal, you're wearing this shirt that's talking about identity politics. And I love that. And I love it for a bunch of reasons. One, um, I think whenever people of color talk about racism, we get accused of playing identity politics mm -hmm. or pulling the quote-unquote race card. Mm -hmm. And I'm really feeling what Maxine Waters said because she showed all the way out at the CBC. <laughs> and I was like, this is a great example of what it means to come collect your people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because one of the things she said was that we have to stop trying to construct ourselves in ways that are safe for white people to digest. Ooh. You feel me? Uh, yeah. I was like, come on and teach. You know? <laughs> oh, Lord. You know? And that, I mean, I think that was a big deal for her to say at a place like the Congressional yeah, the Black Caucus. Official. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. She was really putting it on. Yeah. But the other thing she said was, you know, so so when people tell us, oh, you're pulling the race card, what you actually need to say is, yeah, I'm pulling that card and I got a bunch of other cards I'm ready to pull. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know I mean? And so, you know, um, the, the whole thing around identity politics, which actually comes out of a black feminist framework, right, comes from our black feminist grandmothers, like Barbara Smith, right, and um, Audre Lorde, right, and um, even, you know, sci-fi writers like Octavia Butler, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, identity politics is about your experiences in a, in a world, in a set of systems that doesn't want you to exist, okay? So... Um, there's a contradiction happening where now uh, white liberals, right, mm -hmm. uh, and white moderates are saying, oh, man, well, we lost the election because black people didn't vote. So F-U-B-L-M, you know yeah. what I'm saying? And we lost the election because we spent too much time on identity politics. But let's make sure that we do everything that we can to galvanize white working class people. Yeah. What kind of shit? <laughs> I'm like, oh, so you only like some kind of identity politics, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, that's the normal identity. That's you know the normal saying? identity. But yeah. you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. also, it's a strategy that hasn't worked, like ever, right? Mm -hmm. So <laughs> um, there's something in there for me about us um, as BYP 100 has given us the gift of being unapologetic in our pursuit of freedom and justice, not just for black people. No, there's no such thing as black supremacy. Um, people actually do say that to yeah. me. Oh, I've heard that, yes. I'm like, where the hell they do that at? Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, the day before the ships arrived in Africa? Right, yeah. right. <laughs> but also, um, you know, how do we uh, have each other's back in not being gaslighted by a system that actually doesn't want us to survive? How do we keep ourselves insulated from um, being made to feel like we have no idea what's going on? We don't see what's going on in front of our faces. We don't experience the things we're experiencing um, because the people who hold um, a majority of the power and resources in this country don't want us to feel that way. Yeah. They don't want us to be like, oh, well, who's really at fault right here is, um, you know, 
people like Donald Trump who have amassed billions while there's tent cities all over my city, mm -hmm. right? Um, so we have to get better at this kind of cross-racial, cross-ethnic um, co-conspiring. And we also need to be really clear that we need to collect people for whom um, the only way f of resistance is being respectable. And um, there's no more respectability in this world. There's no time to waste, yeah. right? We could sit around and watch CNN all day and lament about how terrible it is and then go back to our lives. But pretty soon, if it hasn't happened already, yeah. um, your life is not going to be the same level of normal. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to have to figure out who are, who are my homies. Yes. Right? Who yeah. are my homies? Who's got my back? Yeah. And that means you got to have other people's backs. Yes. So get up and start doing something. Joan Williams is a scholar of social inequality. She is the founding director at the Center for Work-Life Law and a distinguished professor of law at the University of California, Hastings College of Law. And her new book, which I am holding in my hand, is entitled White Working Class Overcoming Class Cluelessness in America. So first of all, Joan, thanks for coming on the program. Delighted to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. And rather than me paraphrasing your central thesis, I'm sure you've uh, answered this question a thousand times, but what is the basic thesis of your book? The basic thesis is that American politics are being driven by a broken relationship, a broken relationship between what I call the professional managerial elite, the college educated elite, and the white working class. And this relationship has been going south since the 1970s, but the Trump election was really the nadir, I hope, of that relationship. So I am a silver spoon girl, uh, born and bred, but I married into a white working class family nearly 40 years ago and have studied social inequality for decades. So I decided to try to explain to the college-educated elite just why the white working class is so extremely angry that, to quote one South Carolina voter, they voted with their middle finger. Yeah, you know, that voting with the middle finger is, a, is certainly an evocative quote. And I know someone said to me, uh, uh, that they felt that many Trump voters were throwing a brick through the window of American politics. Now, remember, my answer was, or a grenade, you know, that there's really, uh, really is a great deal of anger out there. Well, let's start with this because I, because I, you know, I think your point is rooted in the concept of social inequality. What is social inequality? Social inequality is that American society, like all societies, has um, an invisible escalator for certain groups and serious headwinds for other groups. 
most people who are interested in social inequality study one thing, they're gender people or race people or class people. I think what I bring, which is different, is that I study um, different vectors of social inequality all at once. So in effect, the way they work in concert with one another to perpetuate or generate social inequality. Um, okay. And the way different vectors of social inequality often end up with different disenfranchised groups at each other's throats. Well, and this is something that I think is central to the debate over what might have been done differently, uh, in, let's say, in the 2016 election to uh, perhaps bring some of these uh, Trump voters into the Democratic column, for example. One of the things, since you're talking about the different vectors or forces involved in social inequality, one of the things that's always struck me is that there is a it seems to me that there's a faction in the Democratic Party, and you could say it's driven by the professional managerial elite, uh, but not all of them, of course. But th there is a certain faction, it seems to me, within the Democratic Party that wants to posit that identity issues, whether they're race or gender, uh, are are somehow distinct and separate from, let's say, economic or class issues when, when class issues or economic issues are going to primarily, in many cases, hit women and minorities harder, for example. So I've, I've found sometimes the, the, that there's an artificial fractioning off of populations that take takes place. Do you, do you agree with that? And is that in any way uh, part of your, your argument in this book? Well, I think that certainly one of the reasons that Rush Limbaugh, for example, has become so popular in deriding political correctness is because we haven't included class as one of the ways that people are systematically disadvantaged in the United States. And there's often a lot of loose talk about white men and how white men are privileged. And um, uh, of, at, that's uh, you often forget in that discourse, and I've been part of that discourse. I spent a lot of time in corporate diversity with corporate diversity initi initiative people. Um, we forget that being a white man who is a blue collar guy um, is also a form of social inequality. Now, what's more important, class or race or gender? This is a boring and unimportant question. It, this is not a zero sum game. The fact is um, all politics is about identity and that's true for white work, the white working class as well as everybody else. Uh, but I think that in focusing on um, other vectors and not talking about class, we're actually hurting the people we're trying to help. After all, having Jeff Sessions as attorney general is not helping right. the LGBTQ community. Right. And I guess my, my, I think we're saying the same thing, Joan Williams. And again, Joan Williams is the author of the new book, A White Working Class, which is that I think it's not only counterproductive to argue which is more important. I think in a sense, it, it, it's really, there's an incoherence to it because I don't think they can even be separated. I think there's a, intersectionality, if you want to use those words. You can't say is class more important, is race more important, is gender more important. They are all aspects to me of an indivisible whole. There are different emphases on the same issues of power dynamics and relationships and who has a voice, giving everyone a voice. Uh, am I being overly idealistic in saying that? Well, I think you're coming out of a tradition that I actually have um, kind of resisted uh, and 
Um, so I, I do come out of identity politics, but I, in many ways, I think this is um, an interesting intellectual frame, but not the most important political frame. I think that what we really have is that's driving American politics is what I call the class culture gap. And that Democrats, um, increasingly since the 70s, have been very, very focused on the, the cultural issues that are very precious to me and the likes of me. Um, everything from LGBTQ rights to abortion rights. Um, these are rights that are so important to me and my crowd because we are privileged people for whom self-development is it both um, a precious ideal and um, we feel very entitled to it. The white working class um, is not as focused on self-development, which after all, they don't have the same access to um, as the college educated elite does. They are more, much more focused on self-discipline because after all, you know, here in San Francisco, being disruptive can make you a billionaire. But if you're in a blue collar job, it just gets you fired is what right. being disruptive does. And so many of the issues that are very, very dear and central to the progressive wing of the Democratic Party um, are issues that reflect the realities of their lives as the college-educated elite. And, you know, one important message of the book is we can't expect elite values from, from people to whom we haven't offered elite lives. And the strongest message I have for Democrats now is that the only way, both for ethical reasons and for tactical reasons, the only way um, forward is to put the economic future of Americans without college degrees ahead of some of these other cultural projects that I've dedicated my entire life to and I'm not diminishing the importance of. But by failing to address the economic hollowing out of the American middle class and the withering up of the future of Americans without college degrees, number one, I think as uh, as progressives and as Democrats, that's, that's not who we are. I, I think that that should be at the center ethically. But I also think tactically, not putting at the center is uh, that that this economic agenda at the center is jeopardizing all of our other projects. And one of the things that Democrats have done, which I think, I mean, I've been a university professor since I was 28 years old, so I am not opposing the importance of college. But the fact is, two thirds of Americans are not college graduates and um, a mind exploding fact for many in the professional managerial elite is that many of those people don't want to be college graduates. Mm -hmm. They want a path to a stable middle-class job that leads can, that can sustain a stable family life as without a college degree. That's what they want. And um, again, the Democrats have, I think become so uh, deeply identified with the college educated elite that they have forgotten how to talk to people who are focused on self-discipline and who want that solid job without a college degree.
Well, you know, I first of all, I, I have to say, and again, we're talking with Joan Williams, uh, author of the new book, White Working Class, uh, that in some ways I would think it takes a certain amount of courage to uh, deliver that message because uh, while I fundamentally agree with it, I think there are a lot of people who within the Democratic within democratic circles who react with a great deal of negativity to it, uh, at least in my experience, maybe, you know, it's just my experience is not. No, that's true. Yeah. It's not a comfortable cultural position I'm in, I'm in right now. Um, and I think my message is that I'm asking the professional managerial elite to give up some privilege um, because after all, it's their cultural projects that have been at the center of democratic ideals for quite a few decades now. And I'm saying um, that their cultural product projects, which are my cultural products, projects, don't get me wrong, um, that for the good of the Republic um, and because of the their ethical obligation and our aspirations as progressives, we need to offer uh, an economic future to people without college degrees, because after all, they just want what we as elites already have, which is a job that offers them a state, our, our vision of a middle class life. And so long as we don't do that, they're going to be voting with their middle finger. Yeah. And I, I, I love, by the way, I have to say, Joan, I love your um, your continued reference to the ethics of the situation, because a lot of the debate around white working class voters in, uh, in in Democratic circles that I hear is focused on tactics and strategy, which is certainly extremely important. But I don't hear enough, in my opinion, said about the ethics of, first of all, not abandoning any group of voters. Secondly, recognizing that what will benefit these voters, working class itself is not a race-specific term. There are black and brown working class voters. There are working class women, LGBT working class people come in all all varieties. Uh, but but so number one, the ethics of not abandoning a group of voters and Number two, recognizing that there is, beyond the issue of the white working class as the subject of your book, uh, there is a working class, a broader working class, all of whom would benefit from the right policies. Is that on the right track as far as you're concerned? Absolutely. I mean, from the very beginning, part of our heritage in the United States is the way that, um, that, that the people in charge have systematically pitted the white working class against um, first the black working class. This, this goes all the way back to um, pitting very consciously white indentured servants against mm -hmm. black slaves in the 17th century. This is a glorious American tradition. Um, it happened again after um, the, the Civil War when Southern planters very consciously said to quote white trash. You notice how people are being called garbage there. Mm -hmm. um, at, you may be white trash, but at least you're not black. Right. Uh, and my fear is that because of this broken relationship that I'm talking about between the cultural um, the cultural liberals and the white working class, that we're doing inadvertently what. Um, elites have done in throughout American history self-consciously, which has driven a wedge between the working class of color um, and the white working class. And we're basically playing into the other side's hands in 
a way that frankly is beneath us as intellectuals. I mean, we're not playing checkers here. We should be playing chess. We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, discussing the billion-dollar mistake the Democrats have been making. Jacobin Radio talked seriously about the importance and interconnectedness of race, gender, and class. Jonathan Capehart on Cape Up spoke with Joan Williams about understanding the different ways that groups are framed in our culture. Politically Reactive spoke with Alicia Garza about how focusing only on the white working class is just another form of identity politics, and it's a strategy that has never worked. And finally, we just heard The Zero Hour also speaking with Joan Williams about building an economic-focused message that doesn't lose sight of the importance of identity. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. This is David from Columbus, Ohio, Cincinnati, last time I called. Uh, in response to the lovely lady from Alabama, she's been doing guns since she was six. I don't think it's possible for a normal person to have a rational position on something that they've been doing since they were before the age of being able to tell right from wrong. It is a tricky place for someone to find themselves when the political conversation the other thing is, I understand the need for security, being gay myself and being a little bit scared of people in dangerous places. But I think that mace or a taser, particularly some of the more powerful and projective models, might be just as much a security without actually putting people's lives on the line. And I don't think any of us wants to be in that moral position where we're taking a life just because we're scared. Later. Hey, Jay and BOTO listeners, this is Chris from Fairfax, and I wanted to uh, call in and, and share my, my views and my insight on uh, uh, the economy, and this ties in with a lot of your uh, economic and taxation episodes, and that is uh, the, um, the, the nature and function of businesses in our economy. Uh, a lot of people say that, oh, you can't cut taxes on, you can't raise taxes on businesses because it's going to hurt the economy, or you can't regulate businesses because it's going to hurt the economy. Well, why? What, what's the big deal? Uh, I think it's important to, to understand that businesses do not exist for the benefit of their customers, okay? They don't exist to uh, enrich their employees either, or even their uh, shareholders. They certainly don't exist for the benefit of the economy as a whole. Uh, all of these people are just a means to an end. And that end is to, to enrich the owners, so the, the, the CEOs, the owners, the people at the top. Um, businesses exist to make a very small number of people as wealthy as they can legally get away with. And, you know, large, successful corporations are very effective at, at concentrating wealth, at, at making few people uh, very rich. And that's not to say it's, it's necessarily a bad thing. It's, it's amoral. But it's just something that uh, you need to understand, I think, if you want to have a, a productive conversation about the economy. Okay, to, to call a, a, a business or a rich person 
a job creator is like calling an automobile an exhaust creator. Like, yeah, it does produce that, but that's not what it's for. That's just a byproduct. That's, that's just a means to an end. And because businesses are for concentrating wealth, for, for centralizing wealth, uh, I think that the rest of the economy, that is to say, uh, nonprofit organizations and government needs to be focused on decentralizing wealth, on distributing wealth in a way that achieves the best good in the world. So, you know, taxation and spending, that's, that's basically what those should be for. And the, 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 the centralizing, the concentrating forces of business and the, the distributing forces of government should be in balance uh, in order to avoid either too much income inequality or even too little. Uh, can also be a bad thing. Anyway, something to think about. Thanks for uh, uh, listening. Thanks for everything you do. Uh, I love the show. See you later. Hey, Jay. This is Zach in Virginia Beach. I have never called in before. I listen to the show a lot. You're doing fantastic work. Thanks to all the members who carry my poor self and... Uh, and allowing me to listen to a wonderfully put together show. Uh, I just finished listening to the NFL episode. And uh, as a person, I, I'm conflicted. I did actually start the season boycotting the NFL for every reason that was listed. Kaepernick being one of them, but I thought there was a lot of absurdity in how the league is managed and run. The fact that somebody could get a suspension that's equal to somebody getting suspension for rape for maybe having something to do with underinflated football. One has a has real victims uh, and it's, it's crime and those people are hurt forever and one might affect how a ball is thrown in a silly game that really doesn't impact anyone else beyond the 40 people playing on the field. And so with concussions and the violence and the love of the war machine that constantly funds them and blackballing of Colin Kaepernick, I wasn't going to watch the NFL this year, and I didn't watch the first three seasons, first three games of the season, and then Donald Trump got on Twitter and started calling for a boycott of his own, and I didn't, I didn't know what to do anymore. I felt like I needed to watch now in solidarity with all of the athletes that are now taking a knee. Like, I'm watching now for them to support them because I don't want to be a part of the other boycott. Like, I don't want to. I don't want to even seem like I'm part of that boycott. I, I find it reprehensible that the president of this country, and it's still gross to say, would call for a boycott of, of a, a sport because the people are exercising the First Amendment that he vowed to protect as being the president. So. I'm just a little conflicted. It's, it is hard for me. I don't agree with anything that the league really does and how it behaves. But I also still want to support the men and in some cases women, like the cheerleaders and other sports, who are still protesting. I don't know. Any thoughts on that would be great. Thanks. Keep up the good work.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, to add on... Uh, no, I guess not exactly to today's topic, but the, the sort of related issue of the nearly breaking news about the Democratic Party. Uh, I, I guess this news broke yesterday. I'm very grateful on a regular basis that I do not have to follow the news on a regular basis. So, uh, like on a day-to-day basis, I mean. And so I, I heard about this, uh, the, the latest Hillary Clinton DNC news as I was making today's episode. So obviously I couldn't quite incorporate it into today's show, but I, I just wanted to give a couple of thoughts about it. I guess I, I didn't bother diving too deeply into the primary and all of the, I don't know, you know, the, the conspiracy theories. So like I'll, I'll call it a conspiracy theory because it doesn't have to be false in order to be a conspiracy. Um, so there were th- theories at the time that the DNC was rigging the election for Clinton and, and uh, all of that. Uh, the news has come out that that is largely in, in many ways, 100% accurate. And uh, so Don Brazil, you know, wrote a book that has, uh, you know, it, it's being released and it, the news has started to break about what's in it and, and some of the revelations there about money going from the Clinton campaign to the DNC with strings attached so that the DNC would uh, sort of institutionally support uh, the Clinton campaign. And what this got me thinking about is it's, it, this is going to sound like quite a departure. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to bring it back around and to, to, before I even start to be super, super clear, uh, no one is comparing anyone to Nazis. <laughs> that, that is not what's happening, but sort of, but only as an analogy. So, uh, Tom Hartman, who, who you probably know, he's featured on the show, you know, pretty regularly, unless I'm utterly mistaken, he refers pretty regularly to the Republicans, the GOP, as a death cult. And I think that's a term he uses. I mean, obviously, it's a little over the top. I think he's trying to make a point that, you know, they're not really exactly a cult and they're not really uh, obsessed with death. But what he's doing is making a comparison with World War II and the countries of Germany and Japan in particular, and, and the psychological transformation that happened with those countries so there there was this you know amazing clash of civilizations going on during the war right and it didn't take that long you know a few decades later and germany and uh, and japan are some of our closest allies and so what tom hartman likes to talk about is is this transformation and how once the war was over and a lot of these truths were revealed like concentration camps and you know other atrocities going on with Japan like there was this transformation of thought about what the war was all about and, and you know the 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 governments that the people were supporting not fully informed about what exactly they were supporting and so you know he talks about it as as you know like a fever breaking or you know a spell being broken to some extent and so you know you go from being in a cult to realizing oh my god that was terrible i can't believe we did that or i can't believe i was supporting that and and then you kind of come around over time 
And so Tom Hartman refers to the GOP that way a lot, that, you know, that they obviously are not on the level of countries like Japan and Germany during World War II, but they believe in so many things that are fundamentally false and believe in policies that lead to so much harm. And and it's really, it's, it's based on like myths and lies that, uh, that he refers to it as a cult. And so I'm making the comparison to the current iteration of the DNC and the Democratic Party and how it's been run again on a much lesser degree. I'm not saying the Democrats are as bad as the Republicans and they're certainly not as bad as the Nazis. No one is saying that, but I'm saying that there is this institutional belief in how things are being run. There's an understanding that just a shared myth that running the Democratic Party as I mean, in this case, running it as like a wing of the Hillary Clinton campaign, even during the primaries, uh, you know, the belief that attracting corporate money to the party is just part and parcel of how politics is done. And there's no other way to do it because, you know, we've been doing it so long. How could you even think of another way to do it? Or or more particularly like, hey, you know, we've been doing this this way for decades. Why in the world would you just now begin to say that it? is causing corruption, you know, that this isn't corruption. This is how politics is done. Like there, there's so many of these deeply, deeply embedded beliefs that sort of culminated in this last primary election. And one, you know, sort of, you know, quite intelligent thing that I, I heard someone commenting about recently is that if you get into a discussion about the 2016 primary, you're almost certainly not going to be having a conversation about policy, you're going to be having a conversation about people's celebrity crushes to varying degrees, but that happens on both sides. And whether you're a Bernie supporter or or Clinton supporter, so much emotional energy is invested there that it's almost impossible to have a fruitful conversation. And, And so you can't get through that emotional barrier to figure out like what's going on here. You know, is there what what could be called institutional corruption not illegal or anything like that but just does corporate money influence the types of policies and the types of politicians the democrats are willing to put forward i think the answer is obviously yes so that's not illegal it's probably not even immoral it's just not a good way to run a country it's certainly not a good way to win a party uh, or to run a party and it's a terrible way to win elections as a, a you know left or center left party as demonstrated by the democrats terrible terrible losses recently so what i'm hoping with these revelations my my initial thought was i wonder if this will be a way to chip through so much of that emotional barrier to get to the core to realize it's not just about corporate money it there actually were deeper levels of corruption happening again not illegal but just deeply deeply unsettling levels of interconnectedness between the clinton campaign and the dnc in a way that was designed to help her win the nomination and so i'm just hoping that this can shake things up enough that we can we can break through some of the old stalemates and just recognize that for 
better, worse, or indifferent in order for the party to rebuild any level of credibility. They simply have to clean house. They can't have the same people be in charge who were in charge before. And through that process, we can break through this progressive civil war stalemate that's been going on for a full year or more now, a year and a half, I guess. So those are my initial thoughts. Obviously, I'm sure news will develop quite a bit over the next few weeks. I have no doubt that this will turn into an episode at some point, but I I thought I would take this rare opportunity to actually comment on almost breaking news because I I don't get to do that very often. And it turned out I had some thoughts to share. So if you have thoughts on that or anything else, as always, you can call in at 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size on Patreon.com, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway at outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained See